Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility or conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Any good story has conflict. If you've studied how to tell a good story, you know you need conflict and resolution. In the great narratives of scripture in the third chapter of Genesis, as the story, the biblical narrative is just getting started, we are introduced to the greatest conflict ever recorded. Satan versus the image bearers of God. But just as soon as the conflict is introduced into the story, so is a promise. There will be an offspring. There will be a seed of the woman, a conqueror who will come and crush the head of the serpent. This is often known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first recording of the proclamation of the good news all the way back in Genesis 3. Just as the first humans have fallen prey to the tempter, so another human will arise from the seed of Eve who will remain faithful, will stand firm under temptation and emerge as a victor, freeing humanity from the grasp of evil. And the rest of the narrative of scripture continues with that longing in mind. Who will be that chosen victor? When Eve has Cain, she says, I've received a man from the Lord. Is this the one? And it's not long after that we find that Cain is also ruled by evil. And the story continues. The only problem with this story is that it's not just a fictional narrative that we can curl up under the safety of a good blanket by a fire and read and enjoy with no impact on our lives. This is a nonfiction story. This story of conflict, which theologians commonly have called the fall, this has real world implications that still affect us thousands of years later. This fall is why conflict exists, both on a micro scale as you fight with your family over Christmas and on a big scale where nations are raging and fighting. And even in the midst of a season like Christmas where we do our best to present our most joyful selves and our nicest selves, it doesn't take long for the real us to show up. We've all seen it. Selfishness, family drama, maybe disappointment over gifts given or gifts received or over the way people react when you give them a gift or maybe the gifts you didn't get or you didn't receive. Poverty, strife, War, the inability to even give good gifts to your kids. The list goes on. Because the best ideals of Christmas can only mask what really happens. There is something deeply flawed within the human race when we need someone, a conqueror, to deliver us from the serpent's grip. Without the fall being dealt with, without that conflict being resolved, Christmas is just a farce. You may have heard stories of the power or the magic of Christmas. Now, I admit I'm a cynical person by nature, so I've always been a little bit like, yeah, bah humbug, you know. But I, I used to hear stories of, of the magic of Christmas. And, and one I heard growing up was, you know, even, you know, nations would stop fighting and cease and put their weapons down on December 25th. Maybe even enemy soldiers would exchange gifts and sing carols together across enemy lines. And I was like, that's stupid. Because the next day, guess what happens? 
You pick the weapon back up and back to war we go. See, if the real problem isn't dealt with, the magic of Christmas is only a farce. It's like a magic trick that maybe as a kid enthralled you. You thought it was real magic. You thought there was something special about it. But as you grow older, you realize you were just a fool for believing that there was something magic going on. And if you love Christmas, hang with me to the end. There's a redeeming point in this. See, we don't have to look very far to see the darkness around us in the world. And if you can't see it there, just look into the depths of your own broken heart. And so as we sit in the waiting and we peer into the darkness and the silence, sometimes we ask the question, does God see? And if he does see, why doesn't he care enough to do something? See, ever since that first conflict, ever since the fall, the, the world has been a mess and no amount of willpower on the part of humans has fixed it. In fact, when we've tried to take control, it only gets worse. We're going to see that in Genesis. Start with the Tower of Babel. And so God, because he created humanity and he does not give up on his, his plan to use humanity, he speaks into the silence and into humans and he tries to call them. He sends judges to judge. He sends kings to rule. He sends uh, prophets to prophesy. But the pattern of scripture is humans say, no, we'll do it on our own. And the conflict continues. Humans reject God. And as a result, darkness remains, brokenness reigns, conflict continues, and God goes silent. Wouldn't you? 400 years in scripture, we read nothing. No prophets, no king, no judge, humans given over to their own devices, left to a time of waiting, waiting for the advent of a conqueror. And the answer to the question, does God see and does God care, is answered at last. One quiet night in a little town called Bethlehem, into the messiness and conflict of humanity, God spoke up. Now, if you're following the narrative and you were reading it for the first time and you were reading this story, you would expect this conquering Messiah to, to come down with fire and wrath and judgment. You would expect a procession, maybe an army leading the way, maybe a thunderous shout from angels to parade the arrival of this king. But the first audible noise in 400 years from Yahweh, the creator of the universe, as we just read, who flung stars and planets into space, the first sound was a baby's cry as it passes through the birth canal of its young teenage mother. This virgin girl who was entrusted with carrying the savior of the world. It was raw. It was real. It was bloody. It was messy. We don't like to think about it this way. This isn't the, the nativity scenes. We've kind of cleaned it up and we've got this pretty little baby sitting there all, all clean and neat. We'd rather clean up the Christmas story. We'd rather talk about it like a silent night when it would have been anything but. Don't know if you've been in delivery room, right? Or had a newborn baby. Silent night is not how I would describe that. See, we've tried to make the birth of Jesus sacred and it, and it is but in trying to clean it up, we've missed 
the humanness of the story. God became flesh. See, I don't really like uh, the process of childbirth. Now, I know there's some of you in here that like see amazing beauty in it, and, and there is, it, it's awesome. But for me, like I can't really stomach it, okay? We've had some people in here who have had kids recently, very recently, props to Coggin fam. But for each of my four kids, and this is a true story, you can ask my wife, I, I stood at the head of the bed, I held my wife's hand and let her squeeze it, and my face was turned to the wall, not involved in anything. Um, even after the baby was born, um, I, I was not involved in the process of cutting umbilical cords. I did not want to hold my children, sorry, those of you that are here, until they were cleaned up and the blood and the like queso looking stuff that comes on the baby was cleaned up and taken care of. And then the, like the new thing is like, don't clean the babies off, let them sit in it for a while. I'm like, you know, whatever. And even when nurses tried to shame me, because, oh, they did. The last one, she's like, oh, this is your last baby. You want to cut the umbilical cord? Like, trying to shame me. I'm like, I got 18 years with this kid. I'm going to be fine. Like, I can wait. Thankfully, my wife enjoys all that. And so she would hold the baby and do all that. She actually cut the last umbilical cord. So I was like, they're letting her do this. She's like, scissors. But anyways. So, so for me, when I think about the God man being born... Honestly, I'm going to be raw, bloody with human fluids covering his body. Sacredness is not what comes to mind. It's not my first thought. It's not beauty. And like, think about the young mother experiencing all the unknowns. Like, if, you, if you've been a first-time mom delivering a baby, like, just the scariness of it. She was most likely a teenager experiencing the pain of childbirth for the, for the first time with all the yelling and the hand squeezing and the sweat and the tears and the, the smells. You think about a young father standing there, scared to death of parenting. If you've been in that role, you're like, I'm not ready for this. You're gonna let me take this baby home? You don't know what you're doing? But he's committed to raise this child and he knows that this son will wear the badge of a bastard child for the rest of his life. Because it's no less of a miracle now for a, a virgin to conceive than it was then. No one believed that. If you told me that, I wouldn't believe you. We see that later in the Gospels. That's how Jesus is accused, this illegitimate son. But this is the miracle of Jesus. God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with man. This is the way that the kingdom of God moves forth. It's not a story you would dream or conjure up. And in, in looking at his birth, the reason I point out the realness of it is we get a small micro glimpse of the messiness of divinity infringing on a messy humanity. It is not always clean and sweet and pretty and neat. Jesus bore shame and humiliation. There was sweat and tears. There was grief and pain in the process of God becoming human. And here's the thing, church, his birth was just the beginning. He didn't just come into our mess just to empathize with us and say, I want to know how it feels. That's a piece of it. That's huge. But he says, I'm going to do something about it. This baby boy was on a mission to grow up and die for the sins of the world. This unlikely 
bastard child was the chosen victor that was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. And if you thought the birth scene was bloody and raw, wait till you get to the cross. Stripped naked and ashamed, he takes the place of the first humans in the garden. That's what's going on there. He's humiliated, he's mocked, he is spat upon, he is misunderstood, he is despised, he is acquainted with grief, he is called a man of sorrows, he was repulsive. No one looked at him and said, that's something beautiful. That's not what happened. It is twisted and it is unjust, but it is what Jesus willingly enters into in order to take evil and turn it on its head. This is the glimmer of light and hope in a dark and fallen world. And as he dies and is buried, he absorbs the worst that evil can give. As the serpent throws its fangs into the foot of the Messiah, attempting to put out light once and for all, attempting to end the battle. And Jesus takes it. And once again, God goes silent. And his people are left waiting as we sit in the waiting and, and you experience things in your life, we can empathize with the disciples who sat there and said, was this all a joke? What have we given our lives to? The conqueror is dead? That's not how the story's supposed to go. He was supposed to march into Rome and set our rule and reign back up and give us seats of honor in the kingdom. What is happening? Was this all for nothing? But three days later, on Easter morning, we get a glimpse into an empty tomb. And in the resurrection, we see that Jesus is more powerful than death. And as the serpent laid its fangs into the heel of this chosen conqueror, he crushed the head of the serpent once and for all. This is the chosen victor. Jesus is more powerful than death and hell and the grave. The serpent is crushed underneath the foot of the firstborn promised years before and darkness is pushed back into its abyss. And there is a way made for humanity to re-enter the garden back into communion with God. That is why we can sing joy to the world when the world is raging. Because all who believe in his life, death, burial, resurrection, he says this is offered to all. It is not based on ethnicity or social class or your income level, but he says it is offered to all. And all who believe simply by faith and grace alone and trust in his life, death, burial, resurrection, you now are conquerors because of the one who has conquered. Darkness, death does not have the last word. And a few days later, Jesus returns and he, he'll never go silent again because he leaves us his spirit within us, church, corporately as a body and individually. We are promised in our midst the same power that crushed the head of the serpent. So that's why we go boldly. That's why in a broken world, in between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus, when he returns to make all things new, we boldly proclaim the good news. That's why we go across the street in our neighborhoods, bringing flourishing, and we go to the ends of the earth. And we do this until Jesus returns again to finish what he started. Because he's going to. 
He's coming back. There's another advent, another arrival that is coming when Jesus throws the serpent into a, a, a pit where the fire goes up forever and ever, which means it's, it's final, it's complete. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. Tears will be wiped away personally by the hand of God. This church is why Advent can matter. So for those of you that love Christmas, you can enjoy it. It doesn't just have to be a farce. It doesn't have to just be a magic trick pulling the wool over our eyes. We are no longer fools to live joyous, hope-filled lives in the midst of a broken world, church. And if the resurrection didn't happen, then we would be fools. That's what Paul says. It's stupid. We're of all men most to be pitied. We are living a farce if the resurrection didn't happen. That's why we hinge everything on that church. But because of Jesus, every Advent season, this is why I think as I've, I've grown older, I've begun to appreciate the beauty of Christmas. And I know it's got its problems and it's been materialized. And there's so much like crap that goes on with it, but it can be redeemed because here's the thing. Every gift given with right motivations every carol song that declares Jesus, every war that stops, even for just a day, it no longer is a farce, but it is a foretaste, church. In a small micro piece, it is a glimpse of the feast that is coming when all weapons will be turned into gardening tools because there'll be no need for them anymore. When, when no one will go hungry, when we'll all sit together at the best feast ever offered. And we're not gonna be sitting around a tree. We're gonna sit around the throne of the lamb who gave his life for us, the best gift ever. And I know that it can be cliche, but it is true, church. When you tell your kids that, you're not lying. That's really true. We will sing loud songs of praise to Jesus. Because all pain, tears, grief, and evil will be cast outside the eternal kingdom. Even the sin that exists in our own hearts. No more wrestling over that anymore. We will be made new in the light of the lamb when we see and we are offered as a pure bride. Estranged families will be reunited. Riches will flood the streets. The best ideals of Christmas will be realized on a scale much larger than you could ever dream. Peace, hope, faith, joy will flood the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus will reign forever. The gates will always be open. That's the vision you see. You know what that means? There's no more danger. Just leave the front door open. Ain't nothing more to fear. Death has been defeated. And that's what we look to in the here and now. So no matter how you come in this morning, no matter the darkness you've experienced, maybe by someone else, maybe the darkness you've done and you wonder, I'm, I'm, I'm too far gone. Jesus welcomes you in. Simply repent and believe the good news. Jesus reigns. Death is stomped out. The war has been won. So in the waiting, rest assured that the conqueror reigns. And this is the hope of Advent.